The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to This is Catholicism on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Jason Gordiano, and I'm joined by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Uh, Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Oh, nice to be here. We are pleased to present This is Catholicism, free of charge for our listeners by the generous sponsorship of Australian Catholic Mission, who hope that listeners will spare a prayer or two for vocations in the growth of the One True Church in Australia. On this episode, we'll be beginning Chapter 2, The Chief Truths of Faith, uh, coming from uh, the Complete Catechism of the Catholic Religion by Father Joseph de Harba, SJ, which uh, is a text that is available in the public domain as a PDF, and used in reprint copies are still available, so more information is in the show notes. Uh, So today, Your Excellency, we begin with uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the first article on God and his attributes or perfections. Question number one, where are the chief things which we must above all know and believe briefly contained? The answer is in the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. The uh, theologians have divided up the Apostles' Creed into 12 sections or articles. Uh, And uh, so they are, these 12 articles are the basic uh, dogmas of our faith. And everyone must know the Apostles' Creed. It's actually uh, under pain of mortal sin that you must be able to recite the Apostles' Creed. So that's something that everyone should know. It's it's a very important prayer of the Catholic Church. Question number two. Why is it called the Apostles' Creed? It's called the Apostles' Creed because, uh, it uh, first of all, it dates from the time of the Apostles. Nobody knows when you know it was first edited or first used and that, that's always a sign of apostolic origin it's one of the the classic signs of apostolic origin that there's no specific date when this appeared uh, but has always been in use in the catholic church that is a sign of apostolic origin and um so it, it is uh, truly the apostles creed it is something that uh, that comes to us from the apostles and um it has been used in the Catholic Church since the time of the Apostles. It's extremely ancient. Uh, uh, question number three. Who is God? It says, God is an infinitely perfect spirit, the Lord of heaven and earth, and the author of all good. So he's a an infinitely perfect spirit, that is, someone who has no body. And he's infinitely perfect, that is, he lacks nothing in the order of goodness, uh, that he has all goodness to perfection, infinite perfection. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. That means he owns heaven and earth. He he rules heaven and earth, and uh, he is the author of all good. That means anything that uh, is good, it comes from him. Uh, so whatever, uh, whether anything that exists uh, comes from him, and everything is good in as much as it exists. So he is the author of all existence. Uh, and uh, so anything that is evil, obviously, does not proceed from God. Question number four. Can we see God? No. Uh, it says in sacred scripture that no one has seen God. And uh, it's in the Epistle of St. John, I believe. Uh, no, it is, God is a pure spirit, and no one has ever seen him. There have, have been apparitions of God, so to speak, uh, but these uh, have been done by angels. For example, the 
God in the burning bush to Moses, uh, appearing to Moses, was uh, that was done by an angel. Uh, the uh, and St. Paul mentions that that these were apparitions of angels uh, uh, for God's purpose, you know, and, and representing God. The uh, three men who came to see Abraham uh, were angels uh, representing God, the the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, uh, and other uh, apparitions of God uh, in the Old Testament, uh, especially were. Um, actually done by angels, the ministration of angels. So that's something to know. So no one has ever seen God. Uh, he is a pure spirit. Uh, it, it is impossible that someone who is infinitely perfect have a body, because a body always involves some sort of limitation and imperfection. Question number five. How then can we come to a knowledge of God? Uh, we can come to a knowledge of God, as it says in the Catechism, both through natural reason and through supernatural revelation. Uh, we, uh, and this is the, um, uh, the the next question, number six, which maybe we should uh, proceed to right now. But natural reason is is from created things. Supernatural revelation is from what God has told us through the prophets and through our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, all of the revelation in the New Testament. So uh, why don't we go to number six? We'll talk about the natural uh, knowledge of God. Question number six. How has God made himself known to man in a natural way? Uh, this happens through creation, what the Catechism calls the visible world, that uh, if we see limited good things in creation, we must necessarily reason to someone who has unlimited good, who is the source of those limited goods. Because good in itself has no limit on, on itself. Goodness in itself is, uh, can be infinite. And therefore, any, if there are limited goods, it cries out for an unlimited good. The same thing with something that exists. If it, if it has come into existence, and if it can lose existence, it means that there must be something that created it which cannot lose existence. Because otherwise you would have to go back to ad infinitum. That means that you, everything would be receiving existence from something else, and that would be an infinite series, which makes no sense. There has to be some place where you, you have a creator who uh, creates, uh, who himself has existence perfectly and from no one else. And he creates and gives existence to creatures who are what we call contingent. That is, they can be or not be. They, they can come into existence and go out of existence. Uh, their hold on existence is very tenuous, whereas he exists by essence. It is impossible that he not exist. And so... Man is able to figure this out. He is able uh, to reason to the existence of God, and human beings have always reasoned to the existence of God. Uh, human beings have never been atheistic, not in any age, except our own, um, which is very unusual in the history of the world. Uh, excuse me. Uh, but, um, uh, so, and St. Paul, therefore, blames the Gentiles for not uh, believing in the true God. He, he says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power also, and divinity. So he blames the Gentiles. Uh, uh, they were blinded by their immorality uh, from knowing the true God. And uh, the Vatican Council of 1870 uh, defined that the existence of God is able to be known from uh, creation, from creatures. So you, you are, it is a dogma of the faith that you are able to reason to the existence and nature of God. Now, when we do that, we're seeing God only through the mirror image of creatures. So that's not the same thing as supernatural revelation, whereby we know God in his intimate life. 
uh, we're, we're seeing him through creatures and, and we're reasoning to him through the analogy of creatures so that, that they're, uh, that a creature has is something like God, so then we reason to what God must be like. Uh, uh, so, but it's it's absolutely possible. The uh, ability to reason to the um, existence of God was denied by Immanuel Kant and by many other uh, 18th and 19th century philosophers, and that's why the Council defined against them. And the other way is, uh, the Catechism says, is by the voice of conscience, uh, which admonishes us to dread an invisible avenger of sin and to hope in the rewarder of virtue. So conscience is uh, the voice of the law of God in us. And we know the law of God, again, by nature. The the natural law, St. Paul says, is written in our hearts. And uh, therefore, when we do something that is against nature, uh, for example, stealing or, or murder or um, forms of impurity, etc., uh, that, that is contrary to the natural law, conscience accuses us. Nobody has to tell you that murder is wrong. Uh, your conscience is, is screaming at you that you have done something wrong. Uh, and this fact that conscience is in every man, uh, and is very bothersome if it's a bad conscience, that is, if it's uh, accusing you uh, of some wrongdoing, it is a sign of the existence of God. Why would that be there? Why would people care? Animals don't have consciences. They just kill and eat as they will. They they grab other people's prey. Uh, whoever is strongest wins, and he is to be commended. Uh, whereas human beings have this sense of justice, uh, equality uh, uh, and, and things that are actually immaterial. No one, you know, has put justice in a jar. Uh, it is an immaterial thing. Human beings recognize it right away, and they cry out for justice. Uh, they are happy when justice is done, when they see criminals punished. And and this is the voice of conscience. This is all goes back to to. Uh, the existence of God as the the prime lawmaker, uh, and and which law uh, that is of God is written in the hearts of men. Question number seven: How has God made Himself known to man in a supernatural manner? This is through revelation, and uh, revelation means the unveiling. So. Little by little, God has revealed himself to the human race, uh, to Adam and Eve, and to the early patriarchs, and then more and more in the Old Testament under the law, and then finally completely through our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, through the uh, his prophets of the New Testament, which would have been his apostles. And once the last apostle died, that's the end of revelation public revelation uh in in the uh in the new testament there is no further revelation beyond the death of the last apostle which is usually taken to be saint john uh and uh, so that that's the deposit of revelation which the church receives and which it proposes it's something like receiving a great treasure chest full of gold and jewels and uh, the church over the centuries has Look through this treasure tre- chest and has proposed these uh, dogmas that are contained in Revelation little by little. Uh, usually uh, uh, they are proposed as a result of a heresy. So uh, the, the whole deposit is there. The Church, however, proposes the dogmas from time to time, uh, either as the result of a heresy denying them or as a result of a great devotion, for example, the Immaculate Conception. Uh, which uh, came from below. Uh, people were asking for a definition of the Immaculate Conception uh, because they had a great devotion to it. And uh, so uh, there could be all sorts of occasions why the Church makes the proposal of what is in this great treasure of Revelation. Question 8. Why do we say, I believe in God, and not only, I believe God? Well, to believe God means you believe what he says as a competent witness. To believe in someone 
means not only that you believe what he says, but also that you believe that he has the ability to do you some good. Um, you know, we might believe in a certain medical treatment or, or uh, uh, believe in, in uh, you know, some sort of economic system uh, because it, it is perceived to do us some good, to be right and good for us. And so also to believe in God means that you believe in him as the savior of your soul. Uh, that he is going to deliver you from sin and and bring you to eternal salvation, uh, and as you believe in him as the source of all good, so so it has a, uh, it's more than simply believing what he says or the way you might believe a witness in court. You believe in him as the source of of your salvation. Question nine: Why do we call God a spirit? We call him a spirit because he is a being that has no body. He has free will and understanding, but he has no body. And that is difficult for human beings because we are very much attached to matter as if matter were the most real thing. In fact, matter is the less real thing in the sense, I know that sounds odd, but uh, uh, anything spiritual is more perfect in the order of existence than anything material. And anything material starts with something immaterial. The reason for that is that matter of itself is something totally undetermined. And in order that something be this or be that, be silver or gold, it has to have an immaterial principle that makes it silver or makes it gold. And and so even matter itself has an immaterial principle, what we call the essence, which makes it to be what it is, or form is another word for that. Uh, and uh, so uh, also our souls are the form of our bodies. They make us to be rational creatures and not merely animals. Uh, and that's why we are created in the image and likeness of God, because we have these immortal souls that are endowed with intellect and will, just as he is. Now, he has no attachment to a body being all perfect, because a body, by its very nature, is corruptible. And he cannot be corruptible. He cannot be composed as if, you know, uh, like a car is composed of many parts because that would be actually imperfect, because whatever is, in, is composed can fall apart, as we know from our cars. Uh, so uh, he, he is absolutely simple in that sense, uh, and, and uh, purely spiritual. Question 10. And why do we say that God is infinitely perfect? Because he is uh, the supreme being, and being by its very nature, uh, is perfection. So if he is supreme in being, that means he has perfection to an infinite degree because the being God, you would have to have being to perfection, to the point of perfection, otherwise you wouldn't be God because somebody else would have it and you would not be it. And therefore... Uh, you, all of your uh, qualities are perfect too, because because they all exist uh, in your active existence. They are all identified with your active existence, which is perfect existence. So, because he is the supreme being, he has existence perfectly, and therefore he has all good things perfectly and infinitely. Question eleven. Which are the principal attributes or perfections of God? Well, the book uh, mentions all of them here. He is eternal and unchangeable, omnipresent, omniscient, or all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. He is infinitely holy and just, infinitely good, merciful, and long-suffering, infinitely true and faithful. Question 12. What means God is eternal? Eternity uh, means that uh, he always existed and always will exist. And we 
recite this uh, answer in the catechism very easily, but sometimes we don't think about it. Now, you have to think about God existing from all eternity. That is, a perfect being existing that never had a beginning. So that means he existed before all the planets and the universe. He existed completely by himself from all eternity. That is a mind-boggling thought when you when you sit and think about it. Where you 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 are tempted to say where did he come from? Why does he exist? And the answer is he is his own reason for existence. He is the necessary being. And all being comes from him. If you think about that it starts to to, <laughs> to give your mind your intellect a little vertigo. <laughs> Uh, the, the, you know that he there was never a time when he did not exist, and and uh, we oh, you know uh, there's implicitly we we think oh well you know he he was born a long time ago, uh, but uh, no he was never born he was uh, he always existed and he always will exist. That's a little bit easier for us, but the fact that he did not come from anyone or anything. Uh, it is difficult for us. That's a very mysterious thing, you know, that something exists without any source, that nobody created him. Well, why? Why was there not just nothing? Why was there existence? See, you know, it's, it, when you think about that, it's it's mind-boggling. So the uh, that's his eternity. Question 13. What means God is unchangeable? It means that he remains always the same because he is perfect. There is no reason for him to change. He is perfect in all things. He doesn't need anything. There is nothing that he can become that he is not already. Uh, so it, uh, it, it stems from his absolute perfection in, in being, that he is eternal. Uh, it's something like a diamond uh, that never changes and never needs to change. You know, if it's a perfect diamond, uh, it, it lasts forever and people pass it on from, from generation to generation uh, it, because it's perfect. There's nothing to do. Uh, it, it's in need of, of no new perfections. And the same is true of God, that, that he's perfect in all things, therefore eternal. We speak of eternal Rome because it, it is uh, something that never changes in a way. Uh, so that, that's God's eternity and unchangeableness. Question 14. What ought we to do since God is eternal and unchangeable? We must serve and love him forever and ever. Uh, serve him because he is uh, our Lord, that is, he has dominion over us. Obviously, he created us, and he continues to maintain us in existence at every moment. For him, the act of creation and the act of maintaining a creature in existence is the same. So there's no difference between those two things for him. So he is, in a sense, constantly keeping us in creation. And every single thing that exists uh, he maintains, so even the tiniest insect, he maintains, and that is the object of his knowledge. Uh, there's not a single act that any insect performs that he does not know and did not know from all eternity. See, that, that uh, he and foresaw. Uh, so there is nothing that escapes uh, his, his knowledge and nothing that uh, 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 escapes his providence. So we owe him uh, service, and we owe him love because he's all good. The, our wills are made to, to love the good. And so we, we must uh, love God, that is, keep his commandments and seek his glory. Uh, his glory in this life it consists in the salvation of souls. So we sanctify our own souls, and we seek to sanctify the souls of others. That glorifies God. We praise him, we, we uh, draw people to him by good example and by exhortation. That, that's what it means to love God. You know, it's not necessarily an emotion. It's a, it's a, uh, a seeking of his glory. Thy kingdom come. See that? That's love of God. 
Question 15. What means God is omnipresent? It means, obviously, that he is everywhere, and uh, he's uh, uh, on earth and, and in heaven and in all places. Uh, heaven is outside of the created universe, uh, and th- that's the dwelling place of God, but he is everywhere, uh, and uh, all things are present to him, all things are naked to his eyes, uh, there is nothing that that uh, that escapes him. There is no place to hide from him, uh, and uh, because he he sees all things and maintains all things in existence, so you could not exist even unless he were present to you. Yet, at the same time, even though he is intimately present to all things, he is infinitely distant from a created thing. So. Uh, even though he, he's right next to you, he is infinitely distant from you because you are a creature and he is God. And there is no comparison possible between a created thing and an uncreated thing. And so he, he maintains his distance in the supernatural order. And that's why we always, in our sacred liturgy and all, we always uh, have representations of his supernatural and and that uh, he is someone in another order, and uh, that's why there's incense, that's why there's Latin, that's why there's many other symbols of the supernatural order in the Catholic Mass, uh, and that's what people missed. Uh, you know, the first time they saw the Mass in English back in the '60s, uh, and you know, this altar facing the people, and, and a few other things that by by today's standards are fairly tame. That's what was missing. It was naturalized, and the symbols of the supernatural order were taken out of the liturgy. That's why people are drawn to the traditional liturgies, is that it speaks the supernatural nature, or that's kind of a little, this God's supernaturalness. He lives in another order. It speaks that to us, and that's why people are drawn to it without totally understanding it. Uh, and all of the other, you know, the, the Greek liturgy and all is, is the same. It's very supernatural. Um, and uh, so the uh, so even though God is with us and uh, is is seeing all things uh, and is present to all things, uh, nevertheless He lives in the supernatural order, which is infinitely distant from us. Question sixteen: What means God is all knowing? It means that he knows everything, past, present, and future. And he sees all these things as if present. So he sees them happening in a single moment. So he sees, for example, your soul in heaven or hell at this moment. Now, let's hope he sees it in heaven. Uh, but he does He does see uh, all things in a single picture, we might say, in a single moment, I'm speaking humanly, but uh, and that that is uh, another great mystery of of God is how He sees all things, past, present, and future, to us, past, present, and future, in a single moment. Um, and uh, so uh, He uh, He also knows uh, our most secret thoughts. There's nothing that we can hide from Him. Because, again, these things exist, and, and if they exist, they are naked to his eyes. Uh, so we can't think something that he doesn't know. Question 17. What benefit do we derive from the frequent remembrance of God's omnipresence and omniscience? Uh, first, that uh, it it reminds us, as it says, it keeps us everywhere, even in secret, from evil and incites us to good. God is always looking. He's uh, looking very hard. He sees everything, and therefore there's no private sin. There's no sin that you can commit that escapes him, uh, just as the sin of Adam and Eve uh, was... <laughs> was naked to his eyes, and and he pursued them and punished them for it. Uh, So uh, we can never hide from God or or make believe that somehow that he doesn't see what we do. Uh, And therefore, 
just as uh, everyone behaves when the boss is around, <laughs> you know, everyone is making sure that he at least looks busy when the boss walks in. So also, knowing that God is always looking at us, we should be constantly seeing ourselves and our behavior as he sees it. And that incites us to good. And secondly, it says, it gives us courage and consolation in all difficulties and and, uh, troubles. Uh, That is, that God is always with us and he knows exactly what we're going through. Uh, That uh, we are never completely alone. And also, it doesn't mention it here, but that God loves us more than we love ourselves and, and wants our good more than we want it. And um, uh, so that should be a consolation to us that, that God is always there. He is always ready to hear our prayer um, and and help us as, as, as we pray to him. We would like to remind you that you're listening to This is Catholicism on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Jason Gordiano, and I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. And today we've been discussing um, on God and his attributes or perfections. We want to remind you that This is Catholicism is a production of of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Question number 18. What means God is all-wise? Wisdom means the highest form of knowledge. It is... Knowledge from the top of the mountain, that's the way theologians explain it, that uh, if you see uh, the whole world from the top of a mountain, you you see uh, how everything is disposed, and you see how, for example, how two cars are going to crash because they're they're on a a crash course. Uh, it, 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 It is knowledge from the highest sources and the highest causes. Now, he is the highest cause. So he sees everything through his own causality. Uh, He doesn't see things and learn things the way we do. He sees them because he is causing them. Uh, So so he has the absolutely the highest form of knowledge. And therefore, he knows how to dispose all things to their ultimate end uh, in the best way. Uh, Just as if you... uh, Again, uh, if you're an expert in some science, uh, you can uh, figure out uh, things. Uh, you could, you know, how a rocket works or something like that. You you have necessarily a, the highest knowledge of of how to make something achieve its end, and that that's what we mean by disposing all things. Uh, so um, so that that's the wisdom of God. And uh, so we have to respect the wisdom of God. Sometimes we don't understand why we have crosses and, and why things happen to us, and, and we have to have confidence in the wisdom of God that these things are for our good, uh, either for our trial uh, and our perfection in the spiritual life, or as punishments for sin and as, as corrections, because he's all wise. Question 19. What means God is all-powerful or almighty? It means that he can do anything. Uh, There's nothing beyond him and nothing impossible for him. Uh, He cannot do something which involves an intrinsic contradiction. That is, he cannot make a square circle, not because of any lack of power, but because that is against his essence. He cannot act against his own essence because he would not be God if he acted against his own essence. So uh, so that's not possible for him, but not for lack of power. Uh, uh, he has the ability to do all things. Uh, we look at the universe and we see the tremendous power of the universe, the, these uh, stars and nebulas and so forth, with, with an amount of energy that, that we cannot even conceive of. Uh, we look at the sun and, and this this power that it has produced since time immemorial. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 these are attestations of the power of God, and yet you know they're nothing in comparison to his power. But uh, we look at these tremendous stars in the universe. Uh, uh, the, those things are probably created to confound men and to 
to represent the immensity of God. When we look at the universe, we're, we're just so completely humbled. I mean, we're like tiny microscopic creatures in this universe that God has created. And it should make us realize that we're totally insignificant in the order of creation in that sense. That that we're nothing. In, <laughs> we're not even visible on this planet when you get high enough. We're like tiny ants or, or, or bacteria even uh, as far as size. We're nothing. And and uh, so that should humiliate us. Uh, so uh, so the power of God is something that is that is uh, uh, in the true sense of the word awesome that inspires awe and and in a certain sense fear. Question twenty: To what should our belief in God's infinite power and infinite wisdom incite us? Uh, it uh, should incite us first to place all of our confidence in God because he can do all things. The angel said there is no word that is impossible with God. And that was a, a very important thing to say because the incarnation far exceeds in the power of God. And, and as far as we might say, difficulty. <laughs> but again, we're speaking humanly because nothing's difficult for God. But as far as power, the use of his power, is a far greater act than the creation of the whole universe. You know, the creation of all of those stars and planets and every all of the fire of the universe, uh, the incarnation is a far greater act of God, even though it was it took place in in the in you know, an obscure virgin in Nazareth and and uh, produced just a, a tiny conceived child um the uh that was a, a much greater act we might say for god than the creation and maintenance of the entire universe so uh and it, that 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 this child should be at the same time god and man uh is is a a great feat for god we might say and again we have to speak humanly i know that you know uh, it's to speak analogically, but uh, it's after the Trinity itself, the Incarnation is, is the greatest of all the mysteries uh, and uh, the most difficult to understand. Uh, and that's why uh, the angel said nothing is impossible, no word is impossible with God. And, uh, and that means uh, nothing is impossible for him. So uh, that's... Uh, that should give us confidence that he can do anything he wants to do, and we should go to him in prayer and ask for what we need, because he can do anything. Uh, also, to have confidence in in bringing the church to its proper ends in this time. Uh, he's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He can convert whomever he pleases. Uh, he can do things that that lie far beyond our imagination to do. Uh, and you and many times uh, usually he he surprises us by the way he does things, and he does things historically in ways that prove the helplessness of man and and the power of God, uh, like uh, when uh, the when Gideon uh, drove away the the Gentiles uh, with three hundred men uh, using you know, making noise with pots and and. Uh, so that no one could say that the victory was anyone but God's victory. So he very often acts that way. You know, we worry. You know, we worry. We worry. How will this come about? And uh, in fact, he has it all figured out. And in its due time, it happens. So we have to have that confidence. And secondly, we have to be always resigned to his dispensations. Uh, that is, the, to his. Uh, how he orders our lives, what crosses he puts in our lives, uh, and the, what graces he gives us, and, and you know to to bear them, and uh, we we have to have resignation to his holy will, because he is all powerful. Question twenty one: What means God is holy? Uh, it means that uh, he wills only what is good, and, and that. Uh, that that he detests all evil. Uh, so that is holiness is to 
constantly will the good. Well, we, we say saints are holy because uh, through prayer and good works, mortifications, their wills are set perfectly on the good. They, they always, or almost always, elect what is good and perfect. Saint um, Teresa of Avila took a vow always to do what is more perfect, you know, in any choice. Whatever is more perfect, she would do. Uh, you see, because her will is fixed on the good. And so God's will is fixed on the good because he is the good. And he loves himself uh, perfectly and infinitely and therefore is perfectly holy because he is even incapable of an evil thought. He also is holy because he lives in a in the supernatural order and is distinct from the natural order. So he he lives in uh, a different, completely different world, we might say, from the world we live in. That's the sacred and, and the supernatural. Question twenty two: What means God is just? It means that he rewards the good and punishes the evil. Uh, that's justice. And so uh, he has promised justice to both the good and the evil in many cases, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, we await our particular judgment when he will dispense to us justice, uh, and we await the last judgment when he will dispense justice to the whole human race publicly in a, in a, as if a public courtroom. Uh, and um, uh, and he will balance all of the scales of justice at that point. So all of the people who got away with things uh, in the in their lives, and, and uh, he will he will punish accordingly and reward accordingly people who were maligned and who were considered to be malefactors when in fact they they were innocent will be will be uh, vindicated. So uh, he is. Uh, uh, um, uh, there, there is no um, uh, breach of equality in him. All things are, are are balanced according to the scales of justice and equality. Question twenty three: When will perfect retribution be made? Uh, it will not be totally done until the end of the world. So God tolerates certain evils. Um, and, uh, the, uh, but even it will happen also when we are judged in our particular judgment, uh, and, uh, the, uh, we might face purgatory, God forbid we might, might face hell, or we might go straight to heaven. Uh, and, uh, so the, uh, that's, that's when our whole lives will be judged and the state of our souls will be judged. Um, the, uh, the, at the end of the world, uh, the human, all of the scales of the human race will be balanced uh, because many times people do a great deal of damage after they're dead. Think of Henry VIII, all of the damage of 500 years of uh, Protestant Reformation, uh, all of the damage that that has done. Uh, he has to be judged for that, and other malefactors uh, have to be judged for things that they caused even after their death. Those who have spread evil ideas, for example, have caused much damage uh, for many centuries later. Um, and uh, so they must be judged. Uh, so uh, the, the total balancing will come at the end of the world, but uh, there is a judgment that each must face, as St. Paul says, when we die. Uh, and um, uh, so that we can count on that. The reason why human beings search for justice uh, is precisely because God is just. Human beings would not have any sense of justice except for God's justice. It is another testimony of his existence. Uh, why do people go to court for justice? Again, animals don't have courts of justice. They don't sue each other. Uh, they are not hauled before criminal courts when they kill each other. Uh, yet uh, human beings are, are, are even sentenced to death for having killed other human beings because of justice. 
and people search and, and yearn for justice, why do they do that? Why why do they have any uh, feeling at all about what happens? You know, if somebody murders somebody else, you know, why is there a thirst for justice in that case? Why can't we just shoot people? Or you know? and and the reason is that the, that's a testimony to the law of nature, law of God, uh, which is the natural law in the hearts of men. Uh, that there's something wrong with that, and. Uh, so uh, that that's a, a sign of the um, uh, the retribution that will be made in the end. If there are courts and prisons in in this world, why would there not be a court and prison in the next? <laughs> it makes no sense. The people who are atheists and all, uh, it makes no sense to to that that you would have these courts and prisons and even executions in this world and not in the next. Where does it come from? Where does the sense of justice come from? It's an immaterial thing. You can't touch justice. Question 24. To what should the remembrance of God's holiness and justness animate us? Uh, It should animate us first carefully to avoid all evil and to become more and more holy. So uh, the... Uh, the fear of judgment is is a very powerful thing. Uh, uh, it's not the highest uh, way in which to glorify God. We should uh, ideally love Him and do do good in, because we love Him. But the fear of God's just punishment is a very powerful thing. Just as the fear of being hauled before a, a human judge for some wrongdoing is extremely powerful. And is a deterrent to crime. That's why there there is punishment. That's why there is the electric chair or, or the gas chamber or other ways. Um, it's a deterrent to crime. So uh, that that for us it should be a, a deterrent as well. And um, to not to pride ourselves in our pretended righteousness. Uh, that is to say that only God ultimately is holy. If we are holy, it's because we participate in God's life uh, and that uh, we should not uh, take pride in our own in our own good works and, and righteousness, but refer all of those things to God. Question 25. What means God is good? It means that out of love, he will do good to all creatures and that he really bestows innumerable blessings upon us. Uh, it's a goodness in the sense of um, uh, benevolent and, and, and willing that all creatures come to their proper end, uh, which is which is the good. The, we cannot even think about the good without con- considering what is the end. Uh, a good road is one that leads to the end that we propose for ourselves. A bad road is one that does not lead to the end that we propose for ourselves. So the good of the creature is something that pertains to his ultimate end. His ultimate end is always God. Even an inanimate creature has an end uh, it, and therefore has a law. It has the physical laws and it must act according to the physical laws. And uh, all the whole universe attests uh, to uh, a determination of the end and a, a, a governance that that is uh, that brings these things toward their proper ends, and that's how they glorify God. So even when a mosquito bites you, he is uh, doing his job that for which God made him, or actually her, because only the female bites, uh, for which God made her, and that is to to bite you in order to get some blood for her babies. Uh, the uh, that's all in the providence of God, uh, and uh, uh, He wills good to all things. Uh, so, um, uh, so He He loves all of His creatures, and He loves His creatures more than the creatures love themselves. He has placed a legitimate self-love in all creatures, uh, and uh, but He loves them more than they love themselves. Uh, when just when you think about the the goods of the earth, I mean the fact that we have something to eat. Look at the other planets that, ha- that have been discovered 
Uh, I mean, all they are are rocks. <laughs> They're wasteland and, and just one big rock in the sky. That's all they are. But this planet has, has uh, air to breathe that's always constant. Uh, it has uh, sun and moon and, and various uh, things that all uh, you know that, that those produce the heat of the sun and uh, that's not too hot, not too cold, and um, uh, the the all of the you know plant life and animal life, all of the balance of those things, because he intends our good. We take those things for granted, but when you have a look at Mars or some of those other places you begin to appreciate them a little bit more. Question 26. Which is the greatest proof of God's love and goodness? That he delivered his own son up to death for the salvation of sinners. So the uh, it, it is, again, mind-boggling to think that our God would care so much about us that even after we, through our own fault, have fallen into the pit, that he will come himself to take us out of the pit, even at the price of his own life. Uh, St. Alphonsus said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I, I excuse myself for saying this, because it sounds odd, he said, but it seems that our God loves us so much that he cannot be happy unless he's with us. You know, this is a remarkable thing to say. Uh, as if his happiness depended on our company and our he, our being with him, uh, because uh, he, you know, to for God to become man and give up his life for sinners is is when you think of his infinite nature, the fact that he's not dependent on us at all, that he created us out of nothing, he didn't have to create us, he could annihilate us. He could just get rid of us the way you would throw out an old washing machine that didn't work anymore. He, he, he why did he do this? You know, if he was bothered by us, why didn't he just get rid of us? But he has this this special love for the human race that he would give his only begotten son for us, uh, which uh, you know should inspire a great love in return. That, that's the, the devotion to the Sacred Heart. Uh, to to love and return this love that God has has shown to us. Question 27. What means God is merciful? It means that he, in certain cases, uh, will uh, deal with us in a way that uh, exceeds justice. Mercy is something which goes beyond justice. It is a relaxation of the strict measures uh, that justice demands for a good reason and for a higher good. Uh, so the, the, for example, a judge might be merciful to a criminal who shows great penance for his actions and, and might be weeping in front of him true and sincere tears for what he did and uh, might you know apologize deeply to all who have been offended, and a judge would be rightly moved by that to be more lenient in his sentence than, uh, and in the case of a person who uh, just is defiant and uh, gives all the impression that if he had the opportunity he would do it again. Uh, so the the uh, judge throws the book at him and gives him the most stringent of, of the punishments. So mercy uh, must always be based on reason, uh, and in God it's always ruled by his wisdom. Uh, but in certain cases, many cases, and the way he deals with the human race is completely by mercy. Every, everything that he's done for us is mercy, because we are undeserving of any any good after sin. Uh, and uh, so he, he has given us the possibility of meriting. He has given us the grace. He He constantly... Uh, communicates to us actual graces to draw us to himself. Uh, he, he gives us the church. He gives us the Blessed Sacrament. He gives us his mother in heaven. Uh, all of these things that that God bestows upon us, again, which we take for granted. It's as if, well, what else would he do? 
But he wasn't even obliged to create us. He wasn't obliged to save us. He wasn't obliged to reveal himself to us. He could have left us in our misery. And we're seeing what, what misery is coming upon the earth as a result of the abandonment of God. Uh, a misery, perhaps not of the material order, but a misery of the intellectual order in which we are seeing uh, uh, a, a, a situation which is uh, inherently contradictory and contrary to nature. I was just... Uh, in Seattle recently, and I saw the um, headquarters of uh, Starbucks Coffee, and at the top of their building was a tremendous rainbow flag, uh, the flag of the homosexuals. Uh, no other flag, just a tremendous rainbow flag. And, and I thought, if this is not a commentary on the world, that that you would see such a thing you know, on a place that makes coffee, <laughs> why we need to be making a statement about homosexuals in a building that makes coffee, I'll never know. But it says something about our age, uh, that uh, that it is sinking into a misery of the spirit, uh, not necessarily a misery of the body. You know, A lot of people have plenty to eat and have comfortable lives, although a lot of people don't. But... Uh, uh, it, it's a misery of the spirit, and it's especially true in in the developed countries, as we say. They have plenty to eat and plenty to put on, but their minds are all sick and weird and mixed up. And I think that's the reason why you're seeing mass murders and and uh, sick crimes, uh, because people are intellectually and spiritually sick, uh, and it's just getting worse and worse because they are are rejecting. Uh, the the um, uh, the this mercy of God to uh, that has whereby He has given Himself to us and and to lead us to where we should go. So um, so the um, uh, so He He holds out uh, mercy to all penitent sinners. Uh, he sets up the church as an agency of mercy uh, for sinners. The the principal reason for the church is for sinners. The principal reason for our Lord's public life is for sinners. The reason he died on the cross is for sinners. So the church and the priesthood are both uh, agencies of, uh, you know, of mercy for sinners. Uh, you know, to to draw back the sinners to to God. That's what a priest is for. You know, it's he's not primarily made to care for the perfect and the saints. No, it's, uh, they don't need that much care. Uh, the priest is there to try to draw back the sinner because God is all-merciful. Question 28. What means God is long-suffering? It means that he often waits a long time before he punishes a, the sinner in order to give him time for repentance. So, because he's so merciful and loves us so much, he will be very, very patient with us and will will tolerate a great deal in order to bring the sinner to repentance. Uh, and uh, many times he will permit the sinner in his wisdom to fall into great sins in order to humiliate him. St. Thomas Aquinas says that he permits us to fall into sins of impurity for our humiliation. There's hardly anything more humiliating than a sin of impurity, even though they are not the worst sins. Um, they are mortal sins, but they're not the worst kind of mortal sin. Not not by a long shot. There are sins of weakness, uh, but they are dreadfully humiliating. Most people are are would be much more reticent to confess sins of impurity in the confessional than they would be to confess sins of heresy or blasphemy. They would say those things without any hesitation. You know, I I doubted or denied the faith, or I blasphemed God. They would roll that off their tongues without the slightest hesitation, but when it comes to sins of impurity, they're very, very hesitant. And the reason is that they're humiliating because, as he says, St. Thomas, it, it makes us act like animals. That that when we have sinned in that way, we have acted like an animal, and that is very humiliating. So God permits us, St. Thomas says, to, to fall into those sins, uh, 
in order to humiliate us. So his his long suffering is is very long at times, and uh, uh, will even bring a hardened sinner to his his um, eternal salvation through grace on his deathbed. It happens. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Uh, usually through the prayers of other people. What should we do since God is so good, so merciful, and so long-suffering? Well, first we should be thankful to God and love Him with our whole heart. Uh, it's natural to love in return someone who loves you. It's natural to do good to someone who does good to you. If your next-door neighbor mows your lawn or something, you might you know, send over a cake or, you know, it, 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 it's so natural to return good for good. Even animals do it. Uh, they, uh, lick your hand or they, <laughs> if you give them food or, uh, they're nice to you if you are nice to them. So we should be thankful to God and, and love him and, and give him affection. Uh, and if we have sinned, we should with confidence beg pardon of him. So, if we, God forbid, should fall into mortal sin, we should immediately make an act of contrition and be sorry for it, and and then confess at our first convenience, uh, first possibility. Uh, the uh, and if that act of contrition is an act of perfect contrition, uh, whereby we're sorry for having offended God uh, uh, for because of His goodness then we are restored already to sanctifying grace, provided we intend to confess. But the, the soul is back in the state of sanctifying grace. Now, you can't go to Holy Communion until you confess, but if you should die in that time, you would go to heaven because uh, you have, uh, uh, you, your, your soul is in the state of sanctifying grace. It is impossible for the state of mortal sin to coexist with perfect contrition in the soul. Those two things fight. And they cannot coexist together. And we should be good and merciful to our neighbors, as God wills us to be. He wants us to uh, love our neighbors as ourselves. And our Lord was constantly reminding us of, of the necessity to do that, to, uh, and that we show our love of God through our love of neighbor. That means to do good to our neighbor and to will our neighbor's good. That means true good either supernatural good or natural good, either one or the other or both, uh, the, the, uh, so that you have the seven spiritual works of mercy and the seven corporal works of mercy. Those are concrete ways in which to love our neighbor. Question 30. What means God is true? It means that he can neither err nor lie. Uh, so he cannot deceive nor be deceived, as, as the other catechism says, and he can reveal nothing but the truth. So he, he is incapable of evil and therefore incapable of telling a lie. Also, he sees all things, knows all things, so he is incapable of making an error. And so he's absolutely true and therefore utterly and totally believable. Question 31. What means God is faithful? It means that he surely keeps his promises and executes what he threatens. So he, if he promises something, he will be absolutely faithful to that promise. If he threatens something, he will be faithful to the threat. So he doesn't make empty promises or empty threats. That's, uh, he is... Um, absolutely faithful. He doesn't say anything that he doesn't mean, in other words. Question 32. What does the truth and faithfulness of God oblige us to do? First, to believe most firmly in the Word of God and steadfastly to trust in His promise. So we must believe what God says. Uh, we must believe God. We must believe what God has revealed. And to trust his promise, his promise is that if we obey the commandments, uh, we will go to heaven. And so we have to trust that promise and, and order our lives according to that promise, which involves a deep faith uh, in a God whom we do not see. Uh, but uh, that, that's, that's the virtue of faith that he in, infuses into us and the virtue of hope. 
uh, the trust and the promise, just as a an employee trusts that his employer is going to pay him as he said he would. So we trust in God. And <clears throat> two, always to speak the truth and to keep the promise we have made. So that is a a reflection of God's truth and a, a reflection of God's fidelity that we always say what is true and always remain faithful to what we have promised. As we close out this episode, we have covered on God and his attributes for perfections. And I want to thank His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn for your time and being with us on this episode. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode, Your Excellency? No, I think we have covered everything. Uh, it is a, this, of course, is a, an excellent analysis in this catechism of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I, I would encourage everybody to read this catechism again and again, review it. Uh, it's one of the best catechisms I have ever seen, the Deharb catechism that we're using. So, uh, um, And uh, people, I think, would be surprised to know how little they know of their faith when they read this catechism. Well, once again, Your Excellency, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again next month as we continue this series, and God bless you. Thank you very much. We would again wish to thank the generous sponsorship of Australian Catholic Mission. If you have any questions for Bishop Donald Sanborn or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catechism at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Bishop Donald Sanborn, and we would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us are strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Jason Gordiano. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.